This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. U.S. veterans may file a claim for veteran benefits and programs with an agency within the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs that manages that program or benefit. The most common claim is for disability compensation. When a claimant's application for benefits has been denied, an appeal can be made to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. The current appeals process is a complex system. It splits jurisdiction between VA's three administrations and the Board of Veteran Appeals. The process is confusing and contains many unnecessary steps. The volume of appeals has increased over the years. This makes it difficult to resolve appeals in a timely manner under current law. However, the process is changing. How is the Veterans Appeals process changing? What are the key priorities for the VA's Board of Veterans Appeals? And how is the implementation of the Veterans' Appeals Improvement and Modernization Act of 2017 going? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Cheryl Mason, Chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals within the U.S. Department of Veterans' Affairs. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Mark Newsom. Well, Cheryl, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. I appreciate you inviting me and uh, being able to tell all about the great things VA and the Board are doing. Great. Mark, welcome, as always. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. So, uh, Cheryl, would you provide us with an overview of the history and mission of the Board of Veterans' Appeals? How does the board support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs? The board is um, was was established in, ni- in July of 1933, uh, and it actually dates to about three years after the VA was set up as an administration. So, our our history is almost as old as the departments, as far as the administration part. Uh, the board was set up to be an appellate agency. Okay. That's what we were designed to be from the get-go. We had a small group of board members at that time. And uh, our mission is set out in Chapter 71 of Title 38 of the Code. Our mission is to hold hearings and issue decisions in a timely manner. And that's pretty straightforward. The board is the final decision maker in the department, the final tribunal. Uh, We decide appeals on behalf of the secretary from all three of the administrations. So we do not report to any of the administrations. We work across all of the VA enterprise. So how is the board uh, organized? How does it operate? How are you funded? Is it part of the department? And what kind of how is it staffed? So uh, first of all, the board reports directly to the secretary, okay. um, and I report directly to the secretary. I am a political appointee, so I report to the secretary and the president. Um, the chairman is uh, serves in a six year term. Okay. It is different than most of the other politicals in the department, with the exception of the OIG, which is also a six year term. It was set up like that on purpose because we are a separate appellate organization. Uh, we are are funded under the VA umbrella, but separately through Congress. Okay. So our funding comes directly from Congress, but we are part, it's not out of the general fund. The Board of Veterans Appeals is really two pieces. The board itself is the board of judges. Mm-hmm. That's who the board is. That's who we were created to be. Uh, currently, that is the chairman, myself, the vice chairman, and approximately 96 veterans law judges. Oh, wow. okay. That is who the board is. Uh, 
And that's who decides the appeals and who holds the hearings. The board staff is comprised of approximately 800 attorneys and a little bit over 120 administrative professionals. And those staff members um, are vital to what we do. We, we would not be able to operate without them. The board would not be the board without them. And they are actually responsible for the success along with the board of judges that we've had this past year. They support the judges. They provide drafting of the decisions to the judges. They help schedule hearings. They handle our budget. You know, uh, They move, move cases through. So there's a lot of intricacies uh, going on at the Board of Veterans' Appeals. I'd like to transition more to your specific role Uh, Would you tell us more about your duties and responsibilities as chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals? Absolutely. Um, As chairman, my duties and responsibilities, really as I see it, are three-part. I provide strong leadership, direction, and vision for the board uh, to include the judges and the staff. I um, also actively collaborate and work with my colleagues in the rest of VA across that leadership team. My job is to advise and support and do whatever the secretary needs me to do in in, uh, that capacity. And then I also represent the board, the department, and the secretary in outreach events. So uh, whether it's, you know, testifying on the Hill, whether it's speaking to uh, VSO organizations or advocate organizations, um, representing the secretary in speaking events. I recently did that in North Carolina earlier this year. So it's it's kind of a three-part. You know, I move between the three parts every day, depending on where the needs are. So um, you know, regarding uh, those duties and responsibilities, what are your top, say, I don't know, three or, or so management challenges or challenges you face? How have you sought to address those challenges? Well, let me let me put that in context sure. a little bit, Michael. The the board did not have a chairman for almost seven years. It was oh, six I years and t- six mm-hmm. years and ten months actually. Really? And uh, we had four different acting managers during that time. And um, I myself was a member of the board at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were really in constant turmoil during those years. One of the first things that happened was we moved from our location near central office to 10 blocks away. And that has a mindset that goes with it. Then shortly after that, we moved from operating in a paper environment, which we were all very comfortable in. Uh, But technology, you know, demanded that we move forward and we needed to do that. And we moved into a digital environment for our cases, which, again, was a lot of change. How we did things, how we processed things were different. And then appeals modernization started looming. Um, we were, you know, we were working on it, um, and we were working very hard and collaborating with that process. But it just, uh, you know, kind of happened a little faster than I think a lot of people expected. And that really left those things, among many others, with the constant turmoil, really left the board. Um, struggling. There was a lack of direction. There was a lack of purpose. The confidence level was not there. And quite frankly, the board was floundering. And um, so that's really what I walked into um, almost a year ago. And for me, particularly moving from being a person at the board and with working with my colleagues into the chairman role uh, was not only an adjustment for me, but also for everybody I worked with because they had, you know, worked alongside of me and now I was in charge. So that that was a little different. Um, we worked very well together to try to establish that relationship. But it's one of those things that um, as a military spouse, the, the saying goes, uh, you never want to see your military member promoted from captain to major at the same station. Um, that's pretty much what happened um, because it's, you know, it's a, it's a change of duties. So really... What I did from the moment of my uh, swearing in, and I started it at my swearing in, was to begin to build that confidence and encourage the staff and build the team back. Um, As someone who's worked at the board for a long time and has that experience, I, I knew what was there and what the abilities were. It was just a case of getting that 
instilling that confidence again. And I did that through emphasizing a veterans-focused organization away from an individual-focused mm-hmm. organization. We also needed to streamline our processes, accept modernization. There had to be some directed modernization plan as opposed to just floating around. And so I did those th- three things, and those really led to what I called Building Board 2.0. We have to remake ourselves, and in order to remake ourselves, the board, the board of judges, and the staff need to take ownership. And so by having those conversations being visible and being around and really encouraging, supporting, defending, and leading, you build that ownership piece to allow the board to remake itself. And that's what really happened. You've lived the many challenges, it seems. Um, along with those challenges, what has surprised you the most since taking over chairmanship of the board? I, you know, I had to think about that question a lot. I, I've gotten that question a lot this past year. And I really think what surprised me the most is the impact of the board not having a chairman, what that impact meant to the board. It not only meant... Um, that there was a lack of, of direction at the board, but there were common misunderstandings about the roles and the responsibilities of the board, even within the department. So those things working together, as well as the board's lack of confidence and lack of leadership, really impacted the board's ability to deliver on its responsibilities. And that I think that probably surprised me the most. You mentioned that you were uh, on the board, um, and, and now you've risen to... Uh uh, chairman, uh, could you describe for us your career path and um, how did you begin your career and what got you to this current role? Well, um, my my career path um, is can best de- be described as an expedition <laughs> with multiple detours. Oh, um, so these detours literally took me around the world. So I started uh, I started working um, with the government as an intern. Then I went to private practice, and then I came back to government. And um, But my connection to the military, first through my father. My father was a World War II veteran who died by suicide when I was quite young. As a result, I was a recipient of VA benefits. Going through college, I worked for a congressman on the Hill during one of my summer jobs, and, of course, he was on the Veterans Affairs Committee, so I learned a little bit there. And um, I was lucky to marry a military, a U.S. Air Force officer. So I became a military spouse. And so those things really worked together to build a passion in me to want to help veterans and led me to really what, what, what we term these days as choosing VA. Um, for me, I think, um, you know, VA chose, chose me, um, but I also uh, returned that choice. And I, I want to make a difference to veterans. It's very important for me to do so. Um, I graduated with a degree in political science and psychology from a small university in the middle of a cornfield, Ohio Northern University. And within the first year, I began law school. I had to transfer, which is not an easy feat among itself. Plus, I lost the opportunity for a summer internship, which is normally part of your growing ability. I got a little creative, as you learn to do very quickly as a military spouse. And I was lucky enough to find an internship with the cur- with a colonel who just happened to be the JAG commander. His name is um, Colonel Henry Fowler. He mm-hmm. goes by Hank Fowler. He is um, very much uh, a an amazing leader. Um, I quickly found out that he was a Vietnam POW. And despite those experiences, he really showed me what leadership was. He's an, Like I said, he's an amazing leader, confident, um, br- brings a lot of humor, zest for life, resiliency to the job. And to watch that, especially at, off at Air Force Base at that time was Strategic Air Command. So it was a happening place. There was a lot of stuff going on, and I worked directly with him. And so that also contributed to my... Um, kind of really cemented my belief in in uh, serving veterans. Graduated from law school, worked private practice for a minute in in Omaha. We were lucky to get orders to D.C., and I immediately applied and was hired at the Board of Veterans Appeals, uh, which really for me was 
the convergence of my experience at that time um, as a military spouse. They took a they took a chance on hiring a military spouse, but you know the Air Force has and the military has a way of letting you get settled and then moving you again. So uh, we we left and went to Germany. So came back from. Germany with a, a vast experience, different uh, different toolkit than I had had before. And I worked for an attorney, uh, as an attorney at a couple of different areas in Washington. But my, my VA piece stood out. It was calling me home. It was really felt that's where I belong. So I returned to the board in 1998. And I've been there ever since in a, in a variety of capacities. I started as counsel. Um, and became um, judge and then um, chief judge and then deputy and now chairman. But what I realized for really during during the process and when you kind of look back at your life, when you have a certain point, you get to do that, that really for me, VA was always there. It was always part of my life from, from the point of providing benefits to me after my father's death as a military spouse and then my mother, who was a, a spouse of a veteran, resided with me and had some challenges, and, and I was able to obtain VA benefits for her to care for her in our home until she passed, which made a huge impact to me. You know, it's a great transition to, you mentioned, uh, I think it was General Hank Fowler, is that? So, you know, as a leader... Uh, an example of a good leader, but what, but Chairman, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate for us some of the leadership principles you follow or apply. Well, I think an effective leader is somebody who's constantly growing and learning. And in order to constantly grow and learn and adapt, you have to first listen and pay attention to what uh, is happening around you to try and see what's coming. And to also be visible and approachable for your staff. And I think being, having been a staff member and having been a boss, to me, it's extremely important to understand that your staff are people. They're not machines doing a job. They're people who need to be encouraged. They need to be acknowledged. Their hard work needs to be acknowledged. And they need to be thanked for all of their hard work. And that's why I said at the beginning, you know, the board did a lot of great things this year, but it was because of the staff. And and I say that every opportunity I get. My job was support. So I think those are probably some of the keys for leadership. I've had the opportunity to work for a variety of different leaders. I believe you can learn from good leaders and you can learn from bad leaders. Yeah. I've had really amazing mentors who have continued to mentor me. I've had mentors who said they mentored me and really didn't. But that's okay. You still learn from that. You know, I think uh, visibility is important. I think building the confidence and encouraging your team. One of the things that I've done at the board is communication to me is key. Um, I don't think... We ever communicate enough. I try to be as visible and accessible as possible. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't, depending on my schedule. But I do try to send regular emails. We have regular town halls. We do celebrations. We do award ceremonies. We celebrated hitting the number that we blew the doors off of. We celebrated kicking off FY19 and all that launching, because we've been building. Now we're launching Board 2.0. And... People have a hard time buying into change if they don't see their leader and if the leader is not action-oriented. And for that reason, I recently sat down and did training with my staff on appeals modernization because if I can't talk to it, then how are they going to be confident and comfortable that, that we know what we're doing? What are the key priorities for VA's Board of Veterans' Appeals? We'll ask Cheryl Mason chairman of the board of veterans appeals when our conversation continues on the business of government hour
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Cheryl Mason, Chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals within the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. My co-host today from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, uh, Chairman Mason, before we delve into specific initiatives and uh, priorities, I'd like to give um, the audience an understanding of the evolution of the VA appeals process. And So, could you provide us with an overview of how it works today? What are the core aspects of the process, such as eligibility requirements, what triggers an appeal, and how the process actually works? I need a flow chart. <laughs> and we actually have one. We, re- we, rec- we refer to it as the spaghetti, the spaghetti really? chart uh, for a reason. It looks, it's a mess. Um, the current appeals process quite, uh, process, quite frankly, is complex. It is nonlinear. And it's set in law with uh, both code and case law. Oh, okay. So, you know, um, we, we've had help. Um, with the process. And, and that's okay. That's that's what we, you know, that's what the process is about in America. It is very unique from a standard appeals process anywhere else in either the federal or the judicial branch. And let me explain a little bit on that. First of all, there's a series of timelines ranging from one year to 60 days in the process. The process is spread between the claims organization, either in most cases Veterans Benefits Administration, but also Veterans Health and Cemetery, with pieces going to the board. As far as an eligibility or a real process, timelines are the eligibility. You have to meet the timelines and file your appeal on time. So it goes from a rating decision to a notice of disagreement to a statement of the case being issued, to a Form 9 being filed, and then the case coming to the board, provided no other evidence comes in in that time frame, which can happen. The other situation in there is that during the process, at any time during the process, from the time the notice of disagreement is filed until literally the case is being signed on a judge's desk, the veteran can submit additional evidence and additional argument that completely changes the process, that completely changes the case. And the law requires us to basically stop. It's called the duty to assist. And the duty to assist right now on the current process goes from the claims agency all the way through the board. We basically have to stop that process and give the veteran the opportunity to have the case re-looked at by the claims agency um, for proper consideration of all that evidence that has come in. Mm -hmm. And so what happens (laughs) is... It's confusing to the veteran because the veteran's just trying to provide additional information and doesn't really fully always understand that it's going to completely change where that process is. But it also creates time and creates what, what we call in VA churning, mm-hmm. but basically a back and forth. So there's no resolution. The veterans wait and wait, and they're stuck because where they are in the process, they might be waiting for something to be done, whether it's an SOC to be, a statement of the case to be issued, or whether they're waiting for a board decision, but because we work in docket order, they're in line. And so they wait for years. They really have no control. And so they're stuck. And that's the current process, and it doesn't work, and it's broken. What are some of the key challenges of the current VA appeals process? Well, I think basically um, it's a shared process between primarily the claims agency, in most cases veterans benefits, and the board. 
There is um, a lot of the back and forth for development and duty to assist to make sure that we're getting all the information needed during that time period uh, that the cases before us that is required under the law. And then the veterans don't have choice or control and they're stuck waiting. And many times they're stuck waiting for years and it can, you know, we have unfortunately lost veterans waiting in the process. Um, they have passed, and that's not an acceptable process. So those are the major challenges. Would you outline for us your strategic vision and key priorities for the board? My strategic vision really for the board is to realize its strengths and to rise to the challenges of what lies ahead. Um, we're doing it. Let's, let's look at the last year. The board collaborated across VA to prepare to implement appeals modernization, um, which means we, we worked with practically every organization within the department on this process. Um, and simultaneously, we worked with OIT and U.S. Digital Service to improve our technology, and we've rolled out new technology to include the case flow reader, the interactive decision template, and testing uh, case flow queue, which these are completely different ways that the board and operating systems that the board has is working on. So the staff is showing their resiliency and their adaptability. On top of that, <laughs> they've accepted a new leader uh, who brought a new organizational structure. We also hired um, over 200 more people this year, and we absorbed those in, which was which in, entailed majority of new were attorneys. But there was a lot of training happening. And on top of that, we still managed to hit our goal, actually exceed our goal. Our goal for the year was 81,033 decisions, and we exceeded that. We finished the year at 85,288, which was 30,000 more than we did the year before. So I really think <laughs> that we have shown that our resiliency and our, our agility to prepare for the future so what did I do the, during this period? Well, my job, again, was to encourage and support, defend, and lead, because that's what a leader does in an organization. So again, I started with my priorities from day one. My priorities are service, action, and modernization. Okay. You cannot have one without the others. You have to have good customer service. And by customer service, I not only mean to our veterans, but I'm talking across the enterprise, within the board. In order to have that customer service means you're working together. You accept the modernization and the technology as it's coming, even though it's hard because it's change. And by doing so, you are able to move both of those priorities into action for veterans. And that's exactly what we did with our results. We delivered results to veterans and their families this year. And so these priorities allowed us to build Board 2.0 in 2018, in FY 2018, by highlighting our agility and ability. And so we're just going to go forward from there. Uh, can you elaborate on some of the core elements of it and uh, expected benefits? And also, how will it enhance the decision review process? So it was signed into a law by the president on August 23rd of 2017. It goes into effect, as you said, February 14th of 2019, and we are on track, and we, we will be um, ready and ready to push the go button. So appeals modernization, or AMA as we call it, was designed first and foremost to provide veterans with choice and control over the process. That was the focus. The other thing that's important to know about the AMA, is it is the child or the, the delivery of a, a very unique experience from both the department and our stakeholders to include VSOs, advocates, Hill staff, variety of many stakeholders who all came together to realize that the system was broken and we needed to fix it. And we came together and worked together to build AMA. So that was unique. That's That really has not happened anywhere else in government that I'm aware of. And that collaboration has continued throughout the process and is still continuing. We can't make this happen without our partners. 
Okay, so let me get into AMA a little bit. So basically what we did is we, we split the claims piece and the appeals piece, and we delineated what those pieces were. They had really gotten confused over the years. So the claims piece, a veteran files a claim, and when the veteran files the claim, they get an eight-point letter from We'll use VBA as an example. That's the the biggest customer that we have at the board. They receive a letter that explains to them in in eight specific veteran-focused, friendly language what is missing in their case to make it successful. Okay. At that point, the veteran has their first choice and their first option of control and what they want to do. Because once they get that decision and read that letter, then under AMA, they have three lanes to choose from. Two are within VBA, for example, and those are the claims lanes. One is at the board. Now, the importance of this is, remember when I talked about the appeals process, the current one, we have all these time frames that go all of AMA doesn't have that. It's one year for everything. So when when you get your decision, you have one year to decide what lane you want to be in, where you want to go. And you can make that choice based on we, we are providing information about how long it's going to take you if you go to VBA. Their current commitment for either their higher level review lane, which is basically just a review of the initial evidence, or their supplemental claim lane, which is additional evidence comes in with the duty to assist. Both of those commitments on time are an average of about 125 days. So that's what VA is committed to. The board has, if you choose the board lane, which is the appeals lane, so you don't have to go through that whole process to try and work up to an appeal anymore. You can go direct to an appeal after your initial decision, Mm -hmm. file that appeal with the board, That is what we call the notice of disagreement under the new program. You have three options, and you have to choose one of those lanes. The board has three lanes. We have a direct lane, which is simply we're going to look at everything they looked at the lower level, no additional evidence, no hearing. There is a second lane, which is additional evidence. You have a time frame to submit that. And then we have a third lane, which will schedule you for a hearing with the opportunity to submit additional evidence. Now, of course, the board takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And um, those lanes, the only lane that has a set time frame at this point in time is the direct lane, which is 365 days. We have committed to do that. When we sat down with our with our partners to build this new law, we made a commitment. VA made a promise and a commitment is not written down anywhere, but we're going to keep it. And that is we will prioritize the legacy cases, those cases who have been in the current system, who have been waiting if they choose not to move over to the new system. And we will also, at the board, prioritize the 365 lane because that gives them a time frame. We are working to set the other lanes, um, set times on that. So, again, it's, it gives choice and control. Now, currently, both the board and VBA are running opt-in um, tests. The VBA is running a ramp, and um, the board, just starting in uh, the 1st of October, has opened up what we're calling the ramp appeal lane. So if you, uh, if you went into the ramp, if you opted in to AMA and you're in ramp at VBA, and you do not like your decision from any decision point you've, you've received, you can file a notice of disagreement and come to the board in one of those three lanes. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. As far as what options it does for the veterans, it gives them an opportunity, one, choice and control, right off the top, right off the top. And they can control their time frames based on whichever lane they choose because they'll have an idea of what those time frames are, at least in the VBA lanes and the one board lane. We're working to get more information on the others as we test some things. But it also allows them to move, you know, put an issue in whichever lane they think that issue needs to be in. So um, that's the other where the choice and control comes in. And I think it gives them the option to get decisions quicker. They're not stuck anymore. They're not waiting for years 
and and if they choose to stay or choose to come, you know, choose to get a decision out of one lane and go back into another lane, they can do that. There's options to move. Once you've completed that lane, you can move on to the, another lane. You can actually get a decision from the Board of Veterans' Appeals under the AMA. And if you disagree with it, you can take it to the court. Or um, if you do so within a year, you can go back to VBA and file new evidence. Um, and so those are options, and it protects the veteran's effective date, uh, which was a, was a major um, decision point with all of us to protect that that uh, date of claim for payment, retroactive benefits. Thank you for that explanation. As a veteran, I feel that I'm, I'm well-versed to be able to explain to my friends now. In addition to that, how are you working to implement the requirements of AMA in advance of it taking effect in February of 2019? Well, this, you know, this is a department-wide process, so it's not just the board. But I want to talk a minute about the board, and then I'll get to the partnership in the department. So one thing to remember is the modernization at the board started actually before AMA. So in late 2016, the board began working with U.S. Digital Service to upgrade our technology, primarily our tracking system, which was VACALS. Um, I would tell you what it stands for. It's basically the locator system, but it's our case management system. It was um, basically 40 years old. So you, you can imagine what that technology was. So we had already started working that. And because we had that partnership in place, when AMA became passed, it became the priority. We were able to sit down with digital service and reprioritize our technology needs for that. And that partnership really enabled us to move to where we are today for our successes for last year and where we're going. So I have to thank Digital Service for that partnership because we wouldn't be where we are without them. So that that was a piece of it. Across the department, the big thing to remember is the um, Appeals Modernization Act primarily changes the process. It does not change the substantive law. So how the board applies the law to the case is going to change. You know, in describing the requirements uh, implementation, you kind of, you can glean just listening to you some of the challenges you're facing. But if you wanted to capitalize on some of the other ones, just kind of clearly state what they are, that would be great. But there's another part of the question besides the challenges of implementation. You, 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 you have two dual systems. So, how, and as a consistent theme in our conversation today around managing expectations and, and dealing with change management, how have you dealt with that? And how, what are the implications of having two systems? Well, um, massive is, is probably the best way to put it. The board currently, under under um, the current legacy process, this is what we call the current appeal system, basically runs a two-docket system. We run uh, hearing cases and then the straight legacy that don't request hearing. And we basically run that right now in an Excel spreadsheet which is why digital service is so important. Um, so change is hard by itself. And then moving from um, a two-docket system to, in effect, a four- to five-docket system is really what we're running to. We're really moving to five when you really count all the dockets. Um, the dual system is hard. You have to have the technology in place. We're already... Um, testing that. That's the case flow queue program that digital services built for that. That's an electronic case manager. The attorneys and the judges have that. We're already also testing that with our VSO uh, co-located partners. And that will be able to delineate what the type of case is and where it is and how it moves. The dockets are governed differently under the law. So there there has to be that piece that, that is important to manage. So so there's an algorithm piece to that case flow queue program that is very uh, <laughs> in the weeds that I'm not going to go into. Uh, so that's the first part. Change management is, you know, really runs throughout from the culture to the metrics, to implementation. And so working change management across all three is important. And they, again, like my priorities, they work together. Uh, you can't have one without the other. If you don't have the um, acceptance and the ownership in the culture, then using the new technology to move towards implementation is not going to work. 
So all of those things, again, are part of our collaboration and our training. Uh, we, at the board, we do ongoing training. We, like I said, I recently participated in training with the staff. I intend to do that again. I do training with the field, with our VSO partners. And you have to remember that we're still running the legacy program. Yeah, I mean, it's- while we're working the new program. And so making sure that we're keeping our promise is important as well. And that's where the priorities come in. And so really that's just keeping the focus really on veterans and why we're doing what we're doing and why it makes a difference. And getting those results to veterans is the core focus. How is the veterans' appeals process changing? We'll ask Cheryl Mason, chairman of the board of the veterans' appeals process, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Cheryl Mason, Chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals within the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. My co-host today from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, Cheryl, you mentioned a couple of times the case flow uh, program that will be used in the new system, so to speak. Um, how will that process or the benefits of case flow um, improve the veteran experience? So case flow is is basically um, absorbing vehicles into it. Okay. So vehicles will still remain, but case flow will, in fact, be the operating system um, for the program. So what case flow does is it's an end-to-end process. So the information that comes in the front side, if we need to change it for any reason, it's going to change it throughout the process. So one of the things that happens now uh, with our process um, is if the veteran's address changes, we may not get that at the board until the case gets to the board, or there could be an impact to who their representative is. So case flow, when those changes take place up front, and actually, the current VA.gov website actually has the ability to let the veterans change their address right there. And so that's actually planning to roll into case flow and is actually running into it in, in certain parts already within the department. And so that will roll throughout. So those type of changes for veterans will hopefully make it easier for them to communicate with us and for us to communicate with them. So we won't have the mis- miscommunications or we thought you were here and you were there or we didn't have the right representative. So that's really what what they're going to see, um, as well as more of a streamlined process where it, where, the, where it talks to each other throughout the process. VBMS is Veterans Benefits Management System, which is where most of the cases sit and the digital thing, we'll talk to case flow. So those things talk to each other. I understand the board is exploring a pilot program that will allow the VA to make predictions about veteran behavior, resource allocation, 
and timeliness in all five options within the new system. Can you tell us more about the status of the program? What does it entail? And will the program leverage predictive analytics? The board actually has is is running two programs, two test programs right now. We've primarily finished the first one. We're waiting for final results on that. The first one was a small-scale research program that we began in May that was known as BEAM, the board's early applicability of modernization, of Peel's modernization. And the core goal of that was really to get veteran feedback. Um, It was, again, a small scale. We wanted to find out what the veterans' experience was. There were about 70, I think, um, 70 hours of interviews, which was able to provide us valuable insight on some of our forums and ways some of our communications were. Um, We're still running that process out, but that, that program was really more about qualitative versus quantitative. The second um, test program that we've run, that we're running, is the RAMP appeal program that we began in October. And that program allows veterans who, like I said, who currently have uh, decisions in RAMP that are not to their satisfaction can file the notice of disagreement and come to the board and choose the lane. And that is a little bit where the inter, the um, predictive analytics uh, come into play because it tells us which lanes people are choosing at the board from the ramp process because they're already Mm -hmm. in. So it's not as they would choose from the initial process, but it's once they come to the board. And so that is providing us some information already. And so we'll be able to do um, some more reports on that in the future. And, you know, happy to always come back and talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Open invitation to do that. And that kind of hints to the next question around innovative tools um, that you've used, you, you, you've mentioned it throughout the course of our conversation, some of the things, that you, part of the uh, Board 2.0 and other things that you're doing. What tools are you using? What innovative tools are you using maybe that you would like to highlight? And uh, more importantly, if you could put a nice emphasis on how you're leveraging technology to enhance the ability of the board to make its decisions more effectively, efficiently. So we've done a couple of things. We have both technology as well as streamlining of processes um, in place. So I can start with the technology. Two pieces of technology yeah. are, are of particular importance this past year to the board for FY18. The first was Caseflow Reader. And what that does is it allows the case to be dropped in from VBMS, from Veterans Benefits Management, into a format that makes that is easier for the attorneys to review and um, really uh, do an analysis of the cases that they need to do. So, and that was a major impact. And that started last November and we finalized in December, which really impacted us as as we got more comfortable with it. The second piece was our interactive decision template. The board had not changed its template in over 20 years. And we really needed to do a couple of things. We, we needed to, one, put the bottom line up front for the veterans. That was the number one feedback I heard from everybody on the planet. You know, I have to go to the back page to find out. And it's, it's a lot of legalistic language because we are dealing with a lot of lawyers here. So, so we needed to do that. But we also needed to build something that also, um, while being veteran-friendly and veteran-focused, made it easier for my attorneys and judges to write the cases. So the interactive de- uh, decision template was built using macros in Word mm-hmm. by one of my attorneys <laughs> and some some uh, and a couple other attorneys. It was kind of a group thing. And they were able to link the the decision template to the law and to reader so we can bring it all together as we're writing the decision. And one of the things we did with that is we actually worked with the judges and the attorneys to, one, put the bottom line in front, so the decisions on the, the, the bottom line of the decision is on the front page, and then try to, as we walk through a decision, make it more veteran-friendly and veteran-focused. So that's really what we've done with technology. There's Caseflow Q, which I've talked about as the manager is coming. Uh, there's going to be some hearing scheduling happening, maybe some other hearing magic happening. <laughs> 
<laughs> Dispatch is also now electronic. Um, so my attor- my judges now digitally sign their cases oh, and goodness. basically push a button and it goes, which before it was a paper process. So those things were major. But on top of those, we streamlined some processes. We hired, we reorganized to put the mission up front, so we realigned the staff somewhat. And the one thing that I, I have to throw in here, it's, it's, a, it's a plug, but um, the board was vetted this past year and accepted into DOD's Military Spouse Employment Partnership. And we are one of 400 organizations, and we are the only VA organization that is a member of that. And that means that we are committed to hiring, retaining, promoting military spouses. And for me, as a military spouse, that's a little, I may or may not have had something to do with driving that. Um, But on, on top of that, which really actually enables us to really Um, work well with military spouses and make us an employer of choice for military spouses is we have an excellent telework program. Um, The board has been the gold standard in the department for many years for our telework program. We expanded that this year and moved to a remote program, allowing some of our attorney staff to actually work off-site, and they only come come back to the board up to four times a year. And because of the digital capabilities and the technology we have, we're able to do that. About half the staff does telework. Um, Probably a third, maybe a fourth are remote. But those are major, major impacts and morale builders um, for the staff. And there's one more thing we did this year, which we're excited to see the impact in 19. At the end of 18, the board contracted its biggest contract with uh, for basically case review. It's like document review in the mm-hmm. private sector. Mm-hmm. And we tested this with our summer interns. And it's it was very, very uh, successful. And what we're, we ex- what we saw from that was we saw um, an increase in ability to review the cases a little quicker with the case review taking place prior to and kind of setting that up to be able to streamline the review a little bit for the attorneys going into preparing the case. They still have to Mm -hmm. be responsible for the full preparation of the case and review of the case. But when you're working from somebody already kind of going through and fixing the kinks out, Mm -hmm. um, that helps streamline. And so we're very excited for that to uh, kick off and run this year. If we look at the mission of the board, it requires technical skills, expertise, diverse competencies. Uh, What are you in what are you doing to ensure that the board has competent staff of veterans and uh, law judges and support staff? Well, first of all, um, all the board jobs are always announced on USA Jobs, from judge to uh, administrative professional. So they're all announced on USA Jobs. So for the judge process, there is a seven-year requirement to uh, know veterans law. You have to have seven years of veterans law experience, as well as, you know, some skills in leadership and judgment that we look for. We basically put people through a a very robust interview process. Um, There's usually multiple people in the interview asking questions. Um, And some of those may be board people. Some of those are from the department. We have included external people in that. I think it's really good to have all perspectives. And then uh, the panel will recommend to the chairman. Um, And then it's the chairman's job to, I, as chairman, um, I interview the candidates again. I decide whether I think they're judge material or not because I'm the one making the recommendation um, to the secretary and to the president. And from there, um, the slate is is sent over if there is multiple positions or one. Then then a, a list is sent to the secretary for review. It works as an appointment by the secretary with approval of the president. So really, once it leaves the board's recommendation, it's between the White House and the secretary. But, you know, both the secretary and the White House know of the importance of the veterans law judges. You know, we have in our experience, have had a couple of blips um, with our veterans law judges. And so that's it's vital that we have the right people in the job. And um, 
But the other piece of that is once people become veterans law judge, there is a very robust training program. They are assigned uh, mentors within the program. And on top of that, the board has a certification process for our judges. As long as I am chairman, we will be certifying every year because I believe the annual certification, the judges the position is that important. These are presidential appointees positions. They're not political appointees. They're presidential appointees. There's a duty that goes along with that. And there's a duty to veterans that our veterans expect. So I did annual certification last year, and I will do it again this year and as long as I serve. As far as our attorneys and our administrative professional staff go, we generally hire attorneys um, from entry level. We do have attorneys that apply from other agencies, and we'll always consider them. And there is a very robust training program at the board. People have to learn veterans law, and veterans law is not just the legal side of the house. The medical side is a mile wide and a mile deep and is very intense, and you have to understand the intricacies, and you've got the case law on top of that. So it's a it's a very strong training program, and uh, it usually takes six months of training. We have an initial core three-month period and then another three months with the judges, but really the training goes on for about a year, year and a half after that. Um, and then our administrative professionals come in, and, you know, administrative professionals come in with a, with a diverse background. So depending on what the background is and what job they're applying for, you know, we, we, we put them with those skills. And, and tr- but they go through the same training um, that the attorneys go through, not quite as much on the medical side, but on, on the process side. Um, and AMA has been part of our training process since last s- spring. So uh, because we needed to start talking about it and training to it. Well, you mentioned um, Board 2.0 a couple of times during our conversation and tra- transitioning to the future. What can we expect from Board 2.0? Well, Board 2.0 is is launched and ongoing, so we're we're already um, moving forward with that, and and really that is due to the board staff making it happen. Um, so they really have made that happen. Um, we're already implementing and making those changes. I expect that you will see the board staff and the board really embrace and move out very quickly on AMA while continuing the legacy. A uh, couple, couple um, uh, teasers. <laughs> um, watch what happens with hearings. Um, Watch what happens with hearings. Um, And I am exploring um, how we deliver appeals to veterans, as well as how information gets filed and how they're filed. Um, Technology advances overnight, sometimes hourly, and I want the board to be at the forefront of that. And so I intend to drive that pretty hard. So one last question, and uh, I'd like to get your advice. Uh, What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I would tell them jump in with both feet. And if they want to make a difference every day, they should come to VA. Thank you for your time today coming in, Cheryl. Really appreciate it. But more importantly, Mark and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to this country. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure. Again, I I very much appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about all we're doing. Um, I do consider what I do to make an impact, and I hope that it does. Um, If you want to know more, you can always check the va.gov website, or you can check the board's website. We provide a lot of information at both places, and I think those are uh, um, the best places to look for, for what's happening next. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Cheryl Mason, chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals. My co-host today from IBM has been Mark Newsom. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. 
these individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join him each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 on the Federal News Network. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.